Before we start, I want to thank Nutcrack for supporting the Madisonian podcast. The beautiful crunch and the healthy, humble perfection that every Nutcrack pecan offers is simply superb. With great care, they handmake their Nutcrack candy pecans and its chili spiked cousin, Firecracker, three pounds at a time. I like it as a midday energy boost or a quick after-school snack. You can also put it on your breakfast oatmeal, use it as a salad topper, or throw it on your favorite flavor of ice cream. Nutcrack makes the world a little more delicious, one perfect nut at a time. And they're offering listeners of the Madisonian podcast a special discount. Use code MADISONIAN15 for 15% off purchases at nutcrack.com. That's N-U-T-K-R-A-C-K dot com. And use code MADISONIAN15 in all caps for 15% off your next purchase. My guest for the day grew up a black girl in a big family in the 50s here in Madison. From founding nonprofits dedicated to reducing drug use in kids to reducing infant mortality rates, she has contributed so much to the beautiful city of Madison. I'm Ben Brown, and this is the Madisonian Podcast. I came across Betty Banks in a Google search looking for influential people to talk to in Madison. She is a woman that wears many hats. She is not only dedicated to reducing infant mortality rates and supporting black women's health, but also is a historian teaching about some of the first black people to come and settle in Madison. She is on the board of directors of the Foundation for Black Women's Wellness and has made a local TV show to accompany her nonprofit, focusing on kids, early childhood development, and everything in between. I had some technical issues while recording, so if it feels skippy at one point or another, I apologize. Also, the photographer from the Cap Times was in my studio for the first five or so minutes, so if you hear a strange clicking in the background, that is what that is. With all that out of the way, please enjoy my interview with Miss Betty Banks. Um, I was born and raised in Madison, as was my mother. Um, my, my grandparents came to Madison at the turn of the century, of the 20th century, and um, really were um, early social justice pioneers. Um, and, but I, I grew up in, uh, on East Dayton street, um, and, um, life was very different in the fifties. Um, much, there was much more innocence. Um, I lived in a neighborhood that was, um, a, a mixed neighborhood with, uh, black people and, and, and white people. Um, many of my relatives lived on that same block. That's where, um, that is the neighborhood that my grandparents settled in. And, and what do you mean by when you say like there, there's more innocence, there was more innocence. Well, it it was a time you didn't have to, you know, I, I don't ever remember our doors being locked. Right. Um, you know, and it was, it, it, it was a time of, you know, it was after, it was after the war and, um, you know, people were, you know, building 
America, you know, uh, the the middle class was being, you know, built. And so things are very, very different for me and my brothers and sisters. I have four brothers and, and three sisters. And then I have an adopted sister. My parents adopted um, a, a uh, two-year-old after we were, you know, adults. Right. So... So what kind of what kind of things did you do like as a kid like what what did you kind of do for fun? Well, we played outside and um I, I was looking over some writing that I had done about living growing up on Dayton Street and you know we played games like um you know hide and seek games rode our bicycles um um, skate, you know, roller skated. Uh, my brothers always played little league, and so we'd go as a family down to the um, th- what was then Reynolds Reynolds Field, and that's where they would would play um, baseball. But it was, you know, it was just a different way to live. Um, we got along with our neighbors. We um, the church that we attended. Um, was uh, on the same street. It was on East Dayton Street. Uh, my grandfather was a was one of the founders of that church, so I grew up in that church, and much of our social life um, was rooted in St. Paul AME Church. So, were, were you yourself a religious person, and and kind of how do you think, like growing up in this religious environment, how do you think that affected you know your childhood? Well, I, I think that um, we grew up with Christian um, values and principles. And I, I think, you know, I learned early about right and wrong and how you treated people. And um, I, I learned about a sense of community um, long before it was even identified as that. Right. So what was kind of the school experience for you? Like what kind of kid were you? What kind of student were you? Um, I, I was I was the kind of student that always liked school. We, my family and I, my brothers and sisters and I all attended Lapham School, which is, which was our neighborhood school. And um, I, I always liked school. And, and I think the, the interesting thing for me in growing up was that even as a, a young student, there was something that I knew was different about my life, you know, that my life on the weekends was very different than my life in school because I didn't see anything that looked like me that celebrated who I was and you know where I came from. Did you have any black teachers at all? No, no. And I I distinctly remember um, I was in second grade and we were in the auditorium and watching a movie about Africans and um, they showed Africans dancing and, and kids were laughing and making fun. And you know, it was, you know, it was um, curious to me because I was feeling, you know, proud 
um, because that's the kind of family mm -hmm. I came from. And so I went home and told my parents, you know, that kids were laughing and making fun and the teacher never said anything. She never stopped them. She never said anything. And I went home and, and told my parents. And of course, they um, addressed it, you know, with the school. So, you know, growing up, I, I really did recognize differences. I couldn't verbalize them. But I knew that, you know, my life in my church and in my neighborhood and in my family and in my house, that I, I came from, you know, um, really um, an important, um, I had an important heritage that, and I had grandparents who were, you know, social justice pioneers and believed in um, making change so that life would be better for us and, you know, our community. Um, did you kind of, were you social justice minded, like from a young age or like, I mean, you saw kind of your grandparents and, and them, their approaches on, on that. Were you, did you have any similar feelings about like the injustices that you were seeing in your community? Well, it, it's interesting because um, all I, all I, I, I remember, you know, hearing, you know, when you're, you're young and you hear people talk and I knew about the NAACP um, as a young child, you know, people would, they, my parents would have meetings in our house talking about, you know, the issues of the day. So I clearly understood um, that we as black people, you know, had to, you know, fight for justice. The other thing I clearly understood was that um, we were uh, a strong people and we, um, we had things to celebrate, um, even though those were not the things that, you know, was taught in school. I, I can also remember being in school and wondering why, why would, um, you know, the, the things that I was reading in the history books decide that we were happy being on a plantation. I mean, that just didn't make sense to me. And it didn't make sense to me because of the conversations that I'd have. I never knew my grandfather. He had died when my mother was uh, very young, but I spent a lot of time with my grandmother. And, um, you know, she talked about social injustices and she talked about civil rights. And, um, and so I understood it. I understood it from a very young age. Yeah. How do you think your education in your early years would have been different if you had been surrounded with other black people at school, um, like teachers and, and, and yeah, as opposed to just in your home life? Well, I, you know, I, it, that's an interesting question because I, I feel like my family life was so strong and the kinds of things that I learned uh, about black history in my family, I don't know if it would have, it maybe it, um, I, things that I learned at home would have been affirmed, um, but I'm not so sure that the, the educational system would have been that different. 
back in the 50s. You know, so I really truly believe that um, my my parents and, and my grandmother and my aunts um, all prepared me and my brothers and sisters and cousins to be able to um, survive, you know, in, in um, you know, in an environment that didn't celebrate us. Yeah. So kind of tell me about your middle school, high school experience and, and did you, were you seeing any changes um, anywhere in, as time went on and you were getting older in the school system or? Well, I think um, when I was, um, I'm trying to think what year it was, but anyway, I think that, yeah, I did, there were changes, of course, you know, over the years. I graduated in 1962. Right. And so there were there were changes. I, I watched um, my my family and my the parents of my friends all fight for justice in in Madison. And so we did see changes. And I, I, I think what what black families clearly understood was that they had a responsibility to build in us, you know, strong self-esteem and an understanding of, of, how, of how we had to um, live and the kinds of things. I, I came from a family that really believed in education. All of us um, went to college. Um, my, I, I remember when my oldest brother went away to college but that was always instilled in us. You know, we were really given strong, positive values and, um, and, a, real, um, and a real motivation, you know, for going to college. So I know we hear like about a lot of the demonstrations going on in the 60s um, uh, in the South, but kind of what did those look like in the North? I know you were still in high school but you said like your parents were involved in them. Kind of what did those look like? Well, I think that, um, of course, we were all aware of what was going on right. in the South. And then he here in Madison, especially, you know, we were fighting for fair housing laws. We were fighting. My mother was one of the founders of the, um, the Urban League. She was um, a founding member of the they started out as friends of the Urban League. And so, you know, as growing up, I was always surrounded by the, the, the struggle and the fight for civil rights and um, recognized, you know, what I, I always felt like I had to do to carry on that legacy. And what I really owed those who came before me. So in high school, what did you kind of think that you were going to go on to do? Um, I, I know you said that like your family was, you know, passionate about education and, and college. Kind of tell me about your next steps after after high school. Well, I, I, um, I got married rather young um, and went back to school. I went to Edgewood College. 
uh, all of my brothers and sisters went, uh, some of my brothers and sisters went to historically black colleges. I, I went to Edgewood College. Um, I always knew that, you know, um, like I said, there were things that I, I needed to do to be able to carry on the legacy that my grandparents, you know, left us. Um, I, I got a degree in um, early childhood and social sciences, which, you know, led me to do the work that I've done as an adult uh, with families. Um, tell me, like, the thinking behind, behind that degree and, like, why that, why that field interested you. Well, one of the um, reasons that it interested me was um, my, when my son was born, um, he, had, he is autistic and he lives with me now. Uh -huh. And I um, really developed um, a, a passion about um, being an advocate. I've got two children. I have a daughter who lives in, in um, Atlanta and, um, and then my son lives with me. And so, because, and I, I truly believe because of the way that I was raised, I raised my children with those same values and worked really hard to make sure that my son, you know, received the kind of education that he needed. My daughter was always a good student. Um, she went on to college also. She was an athlete too. And so I, I was, you know, it was just sort of the way that I, I didn't know any other way to think other than, you know, I needed to support my children. I needed to be an involved parent. I needed to um, pay attention to those things that would make them successful. What, what kind of challenges and struggles did you face? Uh, having a, an autistic child? Well, it was interesting because they didn't, they really didn't diagnose him until you know, he was in high school. Wow. But all along, um, one of the things that happened was that his uh, pediatrician had um, referred me to the Wiseman Center and the Wiseman Center, you know, did a, di you know, a diagnosis and really gave me a lot of support for him. And um, it really... And, and I, I met other parents and then I started doing advocacy for other parents. And that's what really, you know, um, showed me that, you know, I had, I had this interest in making sure that those children who learn differently really, you know, needed advocacy and support and their parents needed the same. Tell me about kind of what you did with, with that um, degree and, and kind of what you did after you graduated college and, and went on to have a career? Well, it, it's, it's interesting because um, I, I consider myself a lifelong learner. And so um, I was always, of course, you know, interested in, um, in, in bettering the community and looking at ways that um, 
I could make a contribution to, you know, my community, to the black community and to the community at large. Um, and so as I, um, uh, after I graduated from college, I worked for the state for a while. And then I, I just, I hated that whole system. I mean, it was just, to me, it was just so oppressive. You know, you had supervisors and you had, you know, uh, people who were working and supervisors weren't always fair. And it was, it was just an ugly, oppressive system. And so when I got an opportunity to work for a, um, a, a uh, women's employment agency, that's what I did. Um, it was called Skill Jobs for Women. And I, I went to work there and, uh, and was raising, I had been, I had gotten divorced and I was raising my kids and um, still, you know, being involved in their, in, you know, their schools and doing everything I could to, you know, stabilize my family. Um, I have, I have brothers and sisters who live here and we all just really, uh, supported each other. I knew I could depend upon my family, you know, to to uh, help me when I when I needed help. And the one thing that I I learned at, at some time or another, we all need help. And um, so I became very interested in um, working with parents and helping parents stabilize their their families, and ultimately. Um, I, I began working with, um, I became a um, director of a family resource center called the Early Childhood Family Enhancement Center. And um, there was an organization called Family Enhancement at that time that I worked for. And I stayed involved in, in, in you know, in the community in terms of, you know, sitting on different boards and that kind of, that kind of stuff. Tell me about kind of what kind of work you were you were doing with 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 that um, with that center and, and and kind of yeah yeah well it was a center that um, um, supported young families and um, provided information and education so that families could um, understand uh, the ages and stages of development of their children. We had a center that was located on the south side and what was then the Harambe Center was located on Park Street. It has since closed. Um, but uh, the work that I did was to help families understand and, and um, stabilize their families and understand what it takes to raise a family. And one of the things that um, we all know is that, you know, everybody has, um, when you're raising a family, you know, everybody has, has to learn about their children. And, and this was a center that was open for everyone. It wasn't for at-risk families. And so we had a many, uh, uh, a blended population of families who came. There were families who had, who had, um, you know, lots of resources, and there were families 
who had few resources. And we created an environment where they learned from each other, supported each other, and learned more about their families and strengthened their families. It was a, uh, a center that really believed in prevention and so that um, you could avoid some of the pitfalls before they happened. So kind of what were those pitfalls that, you, that you're referring to? Um, yeah. Well, I, I think that, you know, what you, what you, what families really um, all need to learn about is, you know, how to, how to, to, to put in place the building blocks so that they know how to discipline their children. They know how to um, praise, give their children praise. They know how to, and they understand the ages and stages of development so that, you know, they, they and, and we did a lot of work around early brain development um, and, and so that parents, parenting is hard, you know, and it's always going to be difficult. But I think that education and information about your children and understanding, you know, certain things certainly makes it easier. Um, I went on to, and during the time that I was um, the director of the center, I also became involved and created my own nonprofit called Today Not Tomorrow. Um, I met um, a man who uh, we had a um, a friend in common, and he moved. This guy moved to Madison, and and his friend that this friend that we had in common, he had told him that you know he wanted to get involved. And the guy said, "Well, I'm going to introduce you to Betty Banks," and you know, and so he and I um, created the television show. Have you ever seen? Uh, Club Today, Not Tomorrow, on TVW14. Club TNT. I've heard about it. Yeah, I, I don't know. I haven't seen it. I'm not sure if I, I have access to that channel, but... Um... We're, we're on... You can get it on YouTube, too. Really? Oh. But we created that, um, and um, what we did was we modeled it after Soul Train. So in the very early years... We organized kids and, well, we first, you know, we had never done tele. I had never done television before and neither had he. And the television show actually grew out of, um, we started out publishing a newspaper called the Wisconsin Free Press. And we did a series on drugs in Madison and this was in the late 80s. And so people just didn't pay much attention to it. Um, but we were so astonished when we interviewed kids about drugs and it was about smoking and drugs and alcohol and the things that they were telling us, you know, about sneaking into their parents' liquor cabinets and um, they were doing drugs and stuff. So we were kind of shocked by it and decided that why not put together something that will help kids understand the consequences of, of getting involved in risky behaviors, thus the name 
today, not tomorrow. Make good choices today and not wait until tomorrow. We, we put together a television show, took it to, at that time, Channel 47, which is now Fox. Um, and, you know, we found a production company <clears throat> and raised enough money to be able to, you know, go on television. And we worked mm-hmm. with kids um, and helped them create messages that they um, would give on this show about staying away from drugs and alcohol, sex before time, talked about listening to their parents. And then they would also dance. You know, it was, like I said, it was modeled after Soul Train. And so we, we did that. Um, the television show was um, on the air. Um, we took a hiatus. It was on the air from 1989 to 1991 and then we took a hiatus uh, for a while and you know did some other things um, we changed the format of of club today not tomorrow into more of a magazine type format and decided that we would continue to to um, have young people you know t- take messages to their community to each other um, but we would do it in a different format. So, <coughs> excuse me, we've been on the air. We went back on the air in 2003. We've been on the air ever since. Yeah. So tell me about kind of shifting subjects a little bit. When did you become interested in like infant mortality rates and the disparities that were happening there. When I was doing the work at the um, at the Family Resource Center, during that time, we were um, Family Enhancement. The organization that I worked for was part of a collaboration of organizations that opened the the Harambe Center, which means pulling together in Swahili. And during that time from 2000, uh, my center opened in um, 1990. We actually moved into the Harambe Center in 1992. In 2002, the black infant mortality rate uh, decreased significantly. And it was the first time in history that that had happened anywhere in the United States. And, and why was that? Why was well, that? And that became the question. What happened? Um, and, you know, people have, there was a study that was done and it was inconclusive as to whether or not it was the work that was going on at the Harambe Center and at the Family Enhancement Center that caused it. I, the, I, there's no doubt in my mind that the work we were doing with um, families provided them with information, education, and opportunities to engage with their kids, learn more about their kids. And I'm convinced, I don't care what, you know, the, the, I feel like they need to relook at this study that um, that work contributed to that decrease. And 
um, there we, we were a group of black and white, mostly women who, you know, made a decision, you know, to uh, support families. I was let go from family enhancement in 2009. And in 2017, we opened um, the Today Not Tomorrow Family Resource Center. Um, and we are located now in the East Madison Community Center out on 8 Straubel Court. And we're right in the neighborhood of uh, where uh, Truex Park is. And it is um, a neighborhood that does have mixed um, housing, uh, low-income housing as well as incident neighborhood. Um, and so we opened that center in, in 2017. And, and what work have you been doing uh, with the Today Not Tomorrow Center? And, and has it, do you think it's been a success? It has been a success. We've done, um, we'll, well, we still work with families. We figured out, you know, what it is that we need to do. One of the things that happened was that we pulled together a collaboration of, of age organizations, the African-American Breastfeeding Alliance, the Today Not Tomorrow Project Babies, which is my organization, and Harambe Village Doulas. And we all came together to open this center and provide um, information, education, and support for young families that talk about the importance of breastfeeding. The, we, we, we often talk about you know, the history of, of it, we're built on the history of what has happened to black people in this community, I mean, in this country, as far as breastfeeding and raising children and all of that. And so, we uh, work with um, residents in the neighborhood. We opened a, um, um, a neighborhood market. Uh, the East Madison Community Center is located in an area that's considered a food desert. So what we did was we uh, put together uh, a garden. We reached out to other um, uh, food uh, food agencies like uh, the Feed Kitchen and other uh, healthy food for all. And we opened a free farmer, like a farmer's market, but it's free to the neighborhood. We trained two of the residents to be market managers. Um, and we weren't open last year because of COVID, but we will be opening that market again in um, June, and in fact, I spoke to our, and we're all volunteers. We don't, you know, when we raise money, it doesn't go for salaries. We're, you know, it, it all of our money goes into our programming. Um, and so we'll be reopening the market. I talked to our volunteer gardener today, and we will be uh, planting the garden again. Um, and providing fresh fruits, vegetables, and food for people that specifically live, we're focused on that neighborhood, but other people can come from other neighborhoods. And it is a market, a real market. That's cool. Um, so 
why is there such a disparity in infant mortality rates um yeah why why well, well i i it's it's um it's it's about history and it's about decisions that have been made over from the time that we were brought here as uh, and turned into slaves um those disparities have been in our community for a very, very long time. And I, in my opinion, you know, decision makers, whoever they were, never listened to um, people of color. They didn't listen to what our lives were like. They never believed any, you know, much of what we would say. So I think they were, it's bad decision-making. Um, there are a lot of things that happened um, that um, I would say in the seventies that changed, that changed a lot of, a, a lot of the way that we live. Um, and I think that maybe what's happening now, you know, maybe people are beginning to see things differently. But slavery was of the darkest time in our history. And we are suffering from that today. And, um, and Black people have always known it. See, we're, you know, we've always known, you know, it's been our lived experience and we have never been taken, we have never been taken seriously about, you know, who we are and what we have to offer um, within our own community and as leaders and as, it, and it doesn't matter, you could have a PhD and, and people still not listen to you. But um, what we're living through now is because of what we suffered through. Um, when we were first brought here. How has women's health and, and infant mortality been affected by COVID and this crisis that we're going through right now? Well, it's, it's, um, it's, well, it's revealed a lot of things that have been happening all along. Um, we are still, because of the disparities you know, we are still dying at a higher rate and not getting, you know, the, um, the vaccine, um, access to the vaccine like we should. Um, it's the way that neighborhoods have been created, you know, neighborhoods being under-resourced and not and not strengthen. And the, the interesting thing is that black people have, from the day that we were brought over here in chains, have been working for change and working within our communities and doing what we could against all odds, against all odds, um, making life better. And you, you know, I, I think about all of the all of the injustices and we have endured no matter and i think that that's a 
that's a message that we have to continue to give to our, our young people and for generations that are coming uh, behind us. One of the things I like about our our resource center is that we're intergenerational. I do a lot of mentoring and teaching of young the of the younger generation of women and young men who are who are coming along so that they can they can carry on the struggle and the fight because it's certainly not over. Um, I, I do want to mention one other um, thing that um, Today Not Tomorrow has is a history project called Stony the Road. And it's um, <clears throat> the history of early African-American settlers who came to Madison. And we are a group of the descendants of those, those are our ancestors. And we are telling their story. That's that's cool. That's amazing. Um, yeah. How do you think, this is kind of a broad question, how do you think Madison has changed since the time that you were growing up? Well, you know, for, growing up in Madison in, in, in the 50s, there were very few of us. Um, our lives were really centered um, out of our churches, our so most of our social lives, you know, and 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 you know, of course, you know, we were we went to. I I graduated. There were five black people in my graduating class, so you know, there were, it was a small population of black people, but we were we were doing things. We were. Um, one of the things I've gotten involved with is the public market. And Stony the Road is going to be a part of that public market telling the story. You know, the probably the first person to have a food cart was Mr. Mosley, who had a tamale cart back in the 40s. These are the kinds of stories that Stony the Road tells. Um, so I, I in in documenting that history, in living that history, I've seen changes and I've seen things that, you know, disappoint me. Um, but I, I, I am hopeful because black people have always made a way out of no way. You know, you think of the terror of living, we didn't have to live under the terror of Jim Crow and uh, lynchings, but just knowing about living under that terror, but still taking care of our families and taking care of each other, that says something about the strength of a people. And that's one of the messages that I wanna continue to send, that we are not what these stereotypes say we are. And we, we, we should never believe that. You know, um, we came, we came through this whole history of slavery, and we're still, you know, fighting those battles. This changed, but it, it's got a long way to go. You know, because we, for a long time, you know, we lived under this. You know, um, we've always thought of our our city as being so progressive, and and it really isn't. You know, um, I think that there are 
allies and co-conspirators out there that we have always been able to depend on, but we've got work to do and we cannot, you know, hide behind what looks good. And I think that we all have work to do. White people have to do, they have to do work that rids themselves, you know, of stereotypes and myths um, one of the things that when I was uh, directing the resource center, um, I would talk to families about books and pictures and toys that would help their children understand, you know, that, you know, there we have so much in common, you know, that, you know, uh, we cannot afford to continue um, the myths and the stereotypes and raise our families with these same myths and stereotypes. Yeah. About who others are, because it's not just black people. You know, we're going through this thing now with Asians, you know, so it's a lot of work to be done. And I think that we all have to commit to do it. White people have to commit to really you know, uh, getting in touch with who they are and what their role is in all of this. Right. Well, thank you so much for for doing this and sharing your, your journey. Um, is there anything else you want to say to listeners or tell the listeners at all? Well, I, I think that, you know, um, with everything that's happening politically, and <clears throat> that we all have a responsibility to look at what our role should be. I mean, we're living in um, times that people are, 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 are um, undermining democracy. We can't afford to let that happen. You know, they are, I mean, we have politicians who lie and cheat um, and, and, and are part of this undermining. And we, we, we all have to do what we can, you know, so that this country doesn't succumb to that because we, we're a young country in, in, in terms of looking at, you know, other civilizations. And so we all have a, we have a, um, we really do have a responsibility and it's about it's about all of us who have something to contribute because um, trying to uh, raise this level of division is not going to um, strengthen this country. And I, I really do have hope in our younger generations. And I, 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 you know, the people that are in my generation and, and um, are, are ready, you know, to support you young people, people like you, Ben, who, you know, are, um, are do have podcasts and are interested. You know, you find out everything that you can so that you're knowledgeable. And, you know, um, so that we can, you know, keep this country 
you know, going. I mean, we're still, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. I, I applaud you. Thank you. You do. If you would like to find out more about Club TNT, you can go to clubtnt.org or click the link in the description of this episode. Support us by supporting our advertisers. Use code MADISONIAN15 for 15% off your next purchase at nutcrack.com. The Madisonian Podcast is a production of Benjamin Brownie in association with We Are Productions. It's hosted by me, Ben Brown, cover art, editing, producing, and booking also by me. If you're a Madisonian and would like to be on the show, please email me at ben at themadisonianpodcast.com to express interest. Please support us by buying our brand new line of merch at teespring.com slash stores slash themadisonianpodcast or click the link in the description of this episode. <laughs>